Well, good morning, church. I'm excited to be here to study the book of Esther today. Uh, but first, there's a movie called The Usual Suspects. And in this movie, it centers around this guy being interviewed in a police station. And as he's being interviewed, his name's Verbal, uh, these details come out about this man who's caused all of this havoc. And in every scene, you hear about this guy named Kaiser Soze. Every scene. He's the guy orchestrating everything, and yet the, per, the, the peculiar part of the movie is that you really never see him. You see his effects on everything, but you really never see what's going on. You really never see the main character of the story. Today, as we open up the book of Esther, it's a lot like that. We meet all of these characters. We're, we're going to meet Esther and Mordecai. We're going to meet a king and his second-in-command named Haman. We're going to meet all these people, and yet the main character of the book of Esther is God. And it's almost as if the book highlights this by never mentioning him. And that sounds strange, but as you read it, you can't help but see this intricately woven story that has to have someone behind it. It's easy to feel like our lives sort of uh, work a certain way. We compartmentalize the parts that have to do with Jesus and the parts that don't. We know that God is active in these moments that we're meeting in worship and we're singing about his name is power, breath, and living water. We, we know that this part has to do with God. We know that those moments where we're doing our Bible study or our quiet time, we know that those are riddled with Jesus we know when we're praying before our pizza that it's, it's a Jesus moment, clearly. We're worshiping. But then there are these other parts of our lives that just feel so mundane and ordinary. And what I hope we see today is that God is just as present and active in those ordinary moments. The psalmist says it this way, he uh, neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's Psalm 121. Last week we read some really great news for the Jews that we had followed this, uh, in this kind of second act of scripture, the story of Israel. From really early in Genesis all the way till now we're still following them. And last week they received some great news that the Persian king Cyrus had said that they could go home and rebuild the temple. Go home to Jerusalem. The tribe of Judah and Benjamin, they, they were sent back. And yet, 50,000 of them went, but not all of them. That's the exact context for where we're at today in the book of Esther, that so many went back to rebuild, and yet so many stayed and assimilated into uh, the new culture of Persia. That's where we find today's characters. A new king in Persia, no longer Cyrus, but I believe it's his grandson, Ahasuerus. We're going to learn about Ahasuerus. You may have heard him called by his Greek name, Xerxes. He had a wife named Vashti. And he was throwing this really big party for six months. This raging party goes on and it's drinking, it's debauchery. And have you ever been on a vacation and it's six days, seven days, it could be 14 days. But at the end of the vacation, all you know is you really need one more day. Like, can we move our flights? 
My wife knows I do that absolutely every vacation. Well, that's exactly what happens with King Ahasuerus. He's, he's thrown this six-month party. He's like, I really need one more week. So they throw a party for another seven days. It's just as insane as the one before it, the one it's connected to. And at the end of the party, he calls for his wife, Vashti, to come. And he, she's so beautiful, he just wants to show her off to everyone that's at this party. All these governors and leaders of the provinces. And she refused to come at his request. He's embarrassed. He's angry. Well, the people gather around him. The other men that are leaders, his friends, his buddies, they gather around him and they go, Hey, man, if you just let this go, if you just kind of let this fly, all of our wives are going to start saying no to us. We can't have that. You need to come down pretty hard. So they come to the agreement that she needs to be kicked out of the palace. She loses her title. She loses her position. She loses her home. She is no longer Queen Vashti. She's just plain old Vashti. That's where we jump into the story in Esther chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let the cosmetics be given and let the young woman who, uh, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. So the king thinks back, he remembers Vashti, it's been a couple of years, and then they come up with this plan that they're going to have a competition, basically Persia's next top model. There are 50 million people in the largest kingdom in all of the world. 25 million of them, you can kind of mathematically assume, are women. And they're going to narrow it down and pick the most beautiful woman in the area, and the king's going to marry her. They set them up with diet plans, makeup, personal trainers, spa treatments. And in the middle of that, we meet our two main characters. And we come to our first principle of the day. Live with the conviction that God has your best interests at heart. Live with the conviction that God has your best interests at heart. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So you get it, he was carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. The daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. So this guy was taken away in the exile. He's taking care of his cousin. That's Esther because her parents were both dead. And even in the next verses, it says that he took her as his own daughter. And we quickly see that he met the basic criteria for what this Persia's next top model was. It says the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. 
So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor and quickly provided for her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So she was beautiful. She was so beautiful that she won over the approval of the king's chief eunuch, the guy who's making all the calls, the guy who's gathering up. uh, Josephus, an ancient historian, says that there were 400 women brought to the palace for this. They'd narrowed it down from 25 million to 400, and we're going to see how they narrow it down all the way to one. Verse 12 says us that they got uh, special spa treatment. They were getting facials. They wanted to look as good as possible for the king, so they were going to have this for a year. Where they just eat the right foods, do the right training, get the right makeup, learn how to apply it. Uh, my wife this week, when I was telling her this, she was shocked that they had makeup back then. This is just such a Cinderella story. It's a, it's a woman who comes from nothing, except this time instead of a prince, it's a king. Instead of a fairy godmother, it's a eunuch. It's this really wonderful story that dreams really can come true if you're the most beautiful person in the world. So after she'd been in queen training for a year, she goes before the king, verse 16. And when Esther was taken to Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he had set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a Great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. We reference The Bachelor a lot from stage, and I have no idea why, because none of us actually watch it. Uh, But this is like an episode where there are 400 choices, and on episode one, the moment he sees her, he goes, that's the one. Show's over. The other 399, they, they don't matter. Did he realize he had so many options? It, it didn't matter to him. He knew exactly who he wanted. He was so excited that he eased the taxes and gave gifts to the people. That, that's absolutely wild. And I can guarantee that Esther did not avoid the king at the party. It's easy to read this and think in one twist of fate, one circumstantial coincidence... This woman was taken from obscurity to the palace, from nobody to royalty. It's easy to see that all of these little things fell into place. But God was present in the ordinary moments of her life. He was orchestrating things for her good and for his glory. He was providing for her. She was an orphan, and likely, not long before this, about a year before this, uh, when 50,000 people left, she probably had friends go back to Jerusalem, but it wouldn't have been her call. She's a woman who didn't have a whole lot, being taken care of by her cousin because her parents were dead. Her friends are likely going back to their homeland, and she's in this area where she 
she doesn't have a whole lot. She doesn't seem to belong. It's, it's not safe there for Jews. And it would have been easy for her to think, where is God in all of this? I think God's holding out on me a little bit. I'm trying to be faithful. I don't feel like he's holding up his end of the bargain. I'm stuck in a foreign land that's never loved me. Either he's forgotten about me or he's holding out on me. And there are times in our lives when we're tempted to believe the same thing. There are times in our lives when we look at our circumstances and we look at the things that we feel like we're not getting and we go, the, the same temptation that Satan put before Adam and Eve in the garden, hey, you can have all of this, but don't you think God's holding out on you? I took my daughter to a movie yesterday, The Croods, probably going to win some Academy Awards, and um, as we were watching it, there's this one rule in this entire movie for this guy, don't eat the bananas. You can have anything else, don't eat the, the bananas. And I immediately thought of this sermon and, and this moment where God tells us, do this, don't do this, and we're like, God, why don't you want me to have it all? When in reality, true freedom is found in the fencing of God's order for our lives. That God desires to give us good things. God's not holding out on us. We're just at a crossroad in life where we have to choose whether we believe that he's faithful to us, he's good to us, he's providing for us, or he's holding out on us. And what you choose doesn't change reality. You can decide in your heart that God is holding out on you. It does not make God cheap. We're going to be tempted to go outside of God's provision in the same way that Adam and Eve were. But if we believe, but what we will believe will influence how we live. If we trust God, we can obediently align our lower stories with his upper story purposes and know that his plan is better than ours. So as the story progresses, uh, Esther has become queen, but it's not the same ending of every Disney movie. She doesn't just ride off on a white horse with her new king. It goes a lot further. God had her in a power of, uh, a position of power and influence which brings us to the next point. Honor God when you're given influence. The real beauty of this story is not that a young woman became great from having very little. It wasn't simply that God set her up for life. In fact, God put her in a position to preserve the life of his people. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai, her, basically her dad, overhears an assassination attempt uh, over here is a plot against the king. He does what anyone would do. He goes and tells Esther, who relays it to the king, these people are executed who were planning to kill him. The king sees the good intentions of Esther, but even more than that, uh, the reason we know so much about the Persians is they kept stringent records of everything that happened around the palace. So they write it in the royal records that Mordecai had uh, thwarted this plan that was against the king. And then we jump into chapter 3. After these things, a king, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. 
Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In summary, Haman is promoted to second in command in this kingdom. He's, he's wicked. He's so prideful that the moment Mordecai doesn't bow down, he's filled with rage. But rather than killing Mordecai or, or doing something harmful to Mordecai, he says, I'm just going to kill all of the Jews. Power has a way of heightening our sense of self-importance. It shines a spotlight on something that's already there. You know the famous quote, power corrupts, absolute power is pretty neat. Only the people who know the quote knew that that's not it. Uh, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I'm not sure that I agree with that this morning because I don't know that power corrupts. I think power shines a light on corruption that's within us. We've all seen this abuse of power. We've seen it at home, at work, and with celebrities. We've all heard those stories of celebrities who uh, don't allow people in their circle to look them in the eyes because they're so high and mighty. Stories of the things that they demand for their green rooms. We've seen it at work. Many of us have people who are our bosses that, man, we don't want to work for them. They're so prideful, they're so arrogant, they're so demeaning and aggressive, and then it goes further. We see this in our homes. The influence and authority that God gives us, and yet often we abuse it with power. We take the influence and we lord over our wives or we lord over our children. Well, I am the authority, and yet that looks so different than what Ephesians 5 calls a husband to be. Jesus in Matthew 20 says this about the way a Christian ought to influence. But Jesus called to them, starting with verse 25, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus is saying is simple, but it's so important to us. The influence we have is to serve others. It's to love well. It's to lead people by example and not by flexing our authority. Haman's so mad. Because this is exactly what happened to him. He flexes his authority. The moment he's put in power, what's inside of him is revealed. The wickedness that he has. He wants Mordecai dead, but he goes a step further. He wants them all dead. And at this point, no one in the palace knows that Esther is Jewish. She hasn't told them. In God's providence, she hasn't told them. And we'll see why that matters as it goes. But Haman, because he wants them all dead, he goes to the king. He starts telling him, hey... These people are the worst. Don't you want to get rid of them? 
Kind of the same speech that we heard in previous stories. And the king agrees to make a decree that all of the Jews can be exterminated. This is an insane story, and if you don't know it, you're not going to believe the ending. The king gives his signet over to stamp this decree, which means it's irreversible. Even if the king changes his mind later, he can't do anything to change what's going to happen. Verse 7 says that Haman cast lots. Basically, he rolled the dice and landed on what's called Adar 13th, which is uh, a, a month, I think it says the 12th month of the calendar that they, felt they followed. Uh, it's going to be about this time of year, February or March. The situation may sound dire, but God is not surprised. It may sound random, but God is in control. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What that means is with every roll of dice, God knows the outcome, and God is active in the outcome. God's not sitting there going, Adar 13th, I only have like 10 months to plan this out. Before the foundation of the world, God saw this stuff. Before man breathed on this planet, God knew what was coming. God's in control, he's sovereign. Haman was abusing his power, but Esther was about to show, or was about to use hers for a godly purpose. And this brings us to the last point, but it's a huge one. It's like three times as long as the other ones. Expect bold faith to be tested. In recent weeks, we've really pounded the drum of Job 42.2 that God's plans will not be thwarted. And this is totally true. God's upper story is going to move forward. There's nothing you and I can do to stop it. No mistake that you make, no evil that's done on this planet is going to slow down what God is doing in that upper story. And yet, don't be confused. Don't mistake the fact that God's upper plan isn't going to stop from the fact that your participation with his plan in your lower story might not be thwarted. It's always easier to compromise than make difficult decisions. It's always easier to step back instead of being bold. Verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate the Jews. That's three times killing. Destroy, to kill, annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children. And one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, month, which is the month of Adar, and plunder their goods. A copy of the document was issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by orders of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. You see how chaotic this scene is? This decree goes out, and they see the signet on it, and they know it's official. They know this day is now coming. And the decree is, hey, everybody, when this day gets here, exterminate the Jews. The men and women, the grandpas and grandmas, the babies and the toddlers. It was as shocking as it sounds. Mordecai gets word of this and begins mourning. He dressed in sackcloth. He, he put ashes all over him. This is traditional mourning for um, Jews. 
he went and marched in front of the gates, in front of the palace, and Esther hadn't heard yet what had happened, but she heard that basically her dad was out there walking back and forth, mourning, weeping, dressed in, a, in strange clothes. And she, she says, hey, I'm going, since you can't come in dressed like that, it was a rule, he couldn't come in dressed like that, I'm going to send you new clothes, come in and talk to me. And he refused the clothes, he didn't want to come in. This was not a time to um, relinquish what was going on, this was a time for boldness, but it was also a time for mourning. Instead, he sends her a copy of the decree, informed her what was going on, and she knew what he was asking. Go talk to the king for me. Go see if there's anything you can do to change this. This might not sound like a big request. It sounds really normal that someone would want to go in there and change the trajectory of what's going to happen to their people. But it was a big request. Why? Because if you walk into the king's inner courts unannounced without being requested, you would be executed. The king hadn't called for her in a month. They hadn't seen each other. She knew that as queen, even she should walk, if she walked in there without being requested, she would be executed unless the king extended a golden scepter to her. I know it's strange sounding, but stick with me. Obviously, there was a good reason to be afraid, but don't skip over this fact. This is something that's really important to us theologically. God could have made the king request her. It wouldn't have taken anything. We saw God move in the heart of an unbeliever just last week with Cyrus. The scriptures say that Cyrus didn't even know the Lord, and yet God moved him to send all the people who wanted to go back to Jerusalem. God could have changed this in a moment with a word, with one flick of the wrist. God could have made the king request, and he didn't. Often God doesn't remove difficult things from our lives. God doesn't just make straight the way for every believer uh, knowing that we're never going to have obstacles. Uh, James 1 teaches us that God doesn't tempt us. But we go through trials in life that God doesn't rescue us from. Faith doesn't make trials go away. <clears throat> he asked her to do something hard. He did the same with Abraham and Isaac when he called Abraham to sacrifice his son. Spoiler alert, he didn't have to. He did the same for Moses before Pharaoh. He didn't just make Pharaoh relent in that first moment and weep over his sin. Why should we expect anything different? And so in the same way, when God calls us to do hard things in life, when God calls us to go share the gospel with someone who's not a believer, often those people don't just walk up to us and go, hey, so... Would you tell me about Jesus? God doesn't just make everything easy. It's, it's just not exactly how God works. Following God can come with great cost. And Esther was seeing this. Jesus tells us this as well in Luke 14, starting with verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Jesus is saying that there are times in life when we do hard things, when we make hard decisions, when we have to be bold in our faith. We have the opportunity to follow Christ or do the easy thing. And that's part of being his disciple, following him no matter what, even when we don't know what the outcome is going to be. That's what biblical faith looks like. So what type of hard choices and bold choices will we be asked to make? There are people in this room that God's going to ask to move out of the house that they share with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Many of us in this room are going to be asked to be honest on our taxes this year. Many of us in this room are going to have to leave a relationship that's built on lust and not on Christ. Many of us in this room are going to be uh, going to have to tell our bosses that we're no longer going to immorally fudge the reports that we're being asked to mess up. Some of us in this room are going to be asked to work fewer hours so we can be a better, better father. We might have to stop going to the gym that offers us temptation at every turn. God calls us to do hard things. We might have to have an honest conversation with somebody and repent of something. What empowers us to do hard things? What truth empowers us to do hard things? Obviously the Holy Spirit empowers us, but, but what belief empowers us? It goes back to point one. We believe that God has our best interests at heart. Let me say it a different way. We make hard decisions when we believe that God's better at this than we are. When we believe that he wants better for us than we want for ourselves, that his plan is better than ours is, when we're deeply settled that he has a plan for our good, we will follow where he leads. Biblical faith is obeying God when we don't know how it's going to turn out. And that's where Esther is. She doesn't know how it's going to turn out. But God's been at work in all of these ordinary moments in her life. He's been present and control, and in control. And now her situation's about to get a lot less ordinary. She's about to show great boldness. Starting with verse 13, chapter 4. Do not think to yourself, this is Mordecai talking to her, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Look at the faith Mordecai has in the Lord. You can save us or God's going to save us. That's what he's saying. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I love that ending in, chat, in uh, verse 14. It's this famous for such a time as this. He's saying... Do you think it's an accident that you just married this guy? Do you think it's an accident that you have access to the king instead of being an orphan? Separate from everything in the palace? Living a normal life or going home to Jerusalem? Do you think it's an accident that we stayed? Do you think it's an accident that from 25 million women down to one, you're the one that has a voice here? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my, my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. Listen to this. And if I perish, I perish. 
Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Mordecai says, do you really think it's safe? This decree is official. They're going to find out that you're a Jew. They're going to kill you too. She calls for a fast, and then she says the most boss thing she could ever say. If I die, I die. It's about as bold as anyone could possibly be, and it makes our concerns feel a little more trivial sometimes. When you read what faith can look like, when you read what the outcome can be, it makes it feel silly that we're worried most about being rejected when we tell others about Christ, or we're worried about looking weird if we obey what the Bible says to do. We're worried that culture is going to think that we're strange. We're worried about losing control instead of giving control to God. We can't get over our own hurt in order to forgive. It makes our problems seem so small. John 13, 35 tells us that people will know we are Jesus' disciples by the way that we love. That John 8, 31 says uh, that Jesus' disciples obey and abide in God's word. We can be bold when we're doing what God desires us to do, when we do what he's telling us to do through his word. So to quickly summarize what happens, because this is a very long story, you can go home and read it later. And this is one of the, the most amazing things about the Bible, is that some of us are hearing this story for the first time, and yet it's been in the Bible the whole time. It's been sitting in our drawer the whole time. This, these amazing stories were real people. And I'm sorry I have to spoil it for you with this summary. Esther goes before the king. She gets bold. Three days later, she goes before the king, and what she requests is a banquet. Can I have a banquet with you and Haman? So they have the banquet. And at the banquet, what does she say? He says, I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. What do you want? And she, something's wrong about the timing, and she says, uh, can I have another banquet with you? Seems strange, but you're going to see God's hand in this. It's, it's pretty miraculous. They put the banquet off for another night. At, at this banquet, she asked for another one. And that night, Haman goes home. He's filled with pride because he's the guy that got to eat with the king and queen. And on his way by, he passes Mordecai. He remembers how much he hates Mordecai. So he starts to daydream about how he's going to kill him the next day. It's not even Adar 13th yet. It's not even February or March yet. He starts to daydream about killing this guy that he hates. He even has them build gallows that he's going to hang him on. And that night while Haman sleeps soundly, the king can't sleep. So he calls on his people to pull the royal records, which are hundreds of years of records. They pull one particular portion of it and they open it up to read to him because I guess it's easy to fall asleep when you're listening to the royal records. And what story do they read? They read the story of Mordecai outing the people who were planning to kill the king, who were planning the assassination attempt. He sits up and he goes, I forgot about this. Did we ever reward this man? This has been years. Did we ever reward Mordecai for what he did to save my life? They say, no. So the next morning, uh, Haman goes to talk to the king, and he's going to request that Mordecai be executed. But before he can get a word out, the king says, Hey, Haman, what do we do for someone that we want to honor? What do we do for someone that has the, um, the honor of the king? And Haman starts to think that he's talking about him. 
He goes, well, you could put a royal robe on him. Give him one of your robes. Put a crown on his head. Put him on one of your horses. And you could even have someone walk around town announcing, this is what we do to someone that has the favor of the king. Haman's excited about what his future outcome would be. And the king goes, that's a good idea. You go do that for Mordecai. Haman has to walk out to the guy that he planned the execution of. Put a robe on him. Put a crown on his head. Put him on a king's horse. And Haman's the one that marches him around town uh, for the parade and tells everybody that the king has favor on the guy that he wanted to kill. And it says that Haman went home distressed and crying. And he talks to his family. He's like, I can't believe this happened. And his family hears that Mordecai's Jewish. And they go, wait, 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 wait. This guy that you want to kill, is it, you're going to lose. His wife says, you're, you're going to lose this battle. Haman's still distressed, but that night he shows up to the banquet with the king. Again, Esther offers this moment where she, she wants to make a request. and He says, anything up to half my kingdom Still not knowing that she's Jewish, still not knowing that he has put his signet stamp on this decree that would kill his wife, still not knowing what it would mean for his palace. She says, King, someone wants to kill me and all my people. He doesn't know what she's talking about. He's, he's enraged. He starts to lose it. He starts to freak out a little bit. He goes, who would dare do this? This is the highest form of treason anyone could possibly commit. Who would threaten my queen? She goes, well, he's sitting at the table. She doesn't say that, but that would be awesome. Why don't you ask Haman? He's the one. The king's furious. He had no idea that he had signed the death warrant for his wife. He feels duped by Haman. He storms out of the room. And in the meantime, Haman falls at the feet of the queen and begs for his life. What a difference 24 hours makes. A day before, he's glorying in the fact that he's the one who gets to eat with them. And here he is begging at her feet. He stumbles down to her feet at the couch the moment that the king walks back in the room. The king thinks he's about to assault the queen and has him executed. He says, what, you, you couldn't even wait? In my own palace you're going to try to kill my wife? He's hung on the same gallows that he built for Mordecai one day earlier. The saga seems over, but the king cannot change the decree. The day of Adar 13th shows up, and it's a bloodbath. One hundred and twenty-seven provinces of Persia attacked the Jews. But the bloodbath was for the Persians. They took out 78,810 Persian assailants. They dominated, including 10 sons of Haman himself. 
the king had allowed the Jews to defend themselves, and they did a really good job. This moment may not be ordinary or mundane. There's nothing ordinary and mundane about war. But God provided. He provided through a series of ordinary events. This is an interesting book because God's name is never mentioned in the book. And yet you can see him silently working behind the scenes to do something incredible on behalf of his people. And the moral of the story is not do good by God and he'll do good by you. It's not that if you're faithful, you're going to become king or queen someday. It's not that you're going to get the promotion that you want. But there's a series of ordinary moments in this that show that God's at work in those, doing something bigger. He was orchestrating his perfect plan for his people. The same God that we followed uh, in extraordinary moments for 20 weeks. The God that in Genesis 6 uh, has waters flood the earth, and yet in Genesis 41, there's no water on the earth and famine strikes. And God's in those moments. He's in our desperate moments. But God doesn't require a bat signal to show up. God doesn't require your distress in order to be present. God doesn't require a worship service in order to invade your life. He's there in totally ordinary moments when your family's healthy, when your job is stable, when it's sunny and 75 and not 12 degrees. When the sky isn't falling, the winds aren't blowing, the God of the valley and the God of the mountain is also God of the prairie and the plains and the pastures. He doesn't stop being God because we stop realizing we need him. We can look at this story and say it's ordinary that a king would pick a woman to marry. It's not ordinary that that woman would be there for such a perfect time to plead on behalf of the people. It's not ordinary that she would have such a rooting interest and the outcome of the Jewish people. It's ordinary that a king would want to look at the royal records. It's not ordinary that he does it the night before the man he reads about is about to be executed. It's ordinary that the king and queen would share a banquet. What's extraordinary is how God used it to rescue his people. Our ordinary moments happen every single day. And if we trust God with those moments, he will use them. Hundreds of years later, a very ordinary-seeming woman had a very ordinary-seeming baby in a very ordinary-seeming town. There was nothing ordinary about the birth. The mom was a virgin. The father of that boy is the eternal creator of the universe. The town is the one that was prophesied hundreds of years before that the Savior would come to. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died the death of a criminal on our behalf. And we call him, if you look at Old Testament prophecy and even the beginning of the Gospels, Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name was Jesus, but God with us. That God came to be one of us. To die the death that we deserved. So as we close today, I hope that as we get out of here, we see that our life would look a lot different if we live with the conviction that God has something good in store for us. That God is better at being God than we are. That God's plan is better for us than ours is. And if we live like that, he'd be glorified in our faithful obedience to it. Lord, we love you so much. As we leave this place, would you bless this time that we have together? Would you let your word not return void? Would you remind us, God, that you're at work 
in the moments where we're not crying out to you in desperation, in the moments where we're not celebrating with all the joy in the world, you're at work, you're doing something behind the scenes of our life that you're orchestrating every detail for your glory and ultimately for our good. God, we love you. Thank you so much that we can celebrate in a place like this, a God like you, who did something extraordinary for us by sending your son off the throne and down to this perverse world to rescue your people. As we leave this place, don't let us forget your word, Lord. Don't let us forget what you want to do in our hearts and lives. If you're here and you need to talk to somebody, uh, I'll be out after the service. If you're here uh, and you just need to repent of something or uh, God's calling you to make a hard decision, I pray that you would be faithful in that. As we worship, let's do what God calls us to do.